I don't know that I've ever been as... I don't want to say disturbed or bothered, but captured by the privilege of worship as I have this morning. And looking at these songs that we've sang, that we've sung, the lyrics that are there, what it tells us, it, it really ought to have such an overpowering effect on our lives that we're moved to tears, that we're humbled in our hearts that we bend our knees literally before the Lord giving thanks to Him. I long for a day when that's the experience of God's people when they gather for worship. That they're so moved by the awareness of God's presence that we would be willing to step out of our comfort zones. That we would be willing to surrender fully to Him, to sacrifice whatever pride, whatever prestige, whatever protectiveness we have around ourselves as we deal with the reality of who God is and of our need for Him. This psalm, coincidentally, is titled God Is, at least the the message that I apply from this psalm. So Psalm 46 is considered to be one of the classics within the collection of the psalms. It's attributed to the sons of Korah, who were instrumental in orchestrating the worship that the nation of Israel would participate in, not only for the major feasts, but also for the daily worship of God. This psalm is sometimes referred to as Martin Luther's psalm, because it is in his reflection on this, his meditation of it, and his love for it, that he penned the lyrics to the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Most believe that this psalm is set against the backdrop of a physical, literal army that is on the verge of attacking the nation of Israel. This could have been a part of their period of conquest. It could have been a part of God's um, discipline within the nation of Israel. There's not a lot of certainty as to when this exactly took place. But most believe that there is the ominous threat of war all around them. And so most commentators believe that the strongest option for this would be what is recorded for us in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And it would be the destruction of the armies of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir during the reign of Jehoshaphat which is chronicled for us in Second Chronicles. And so it was during this time of turmoil, this time of this ominous threat, that God spoke to the prophet Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and he spoke these words to the nation of Israel. He said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. So Israel is facing a very literal physical army. It's on their doorstep. It's outside of their encampment. They feel overwhelmed. They already feel defeated. Jehoshaphat, it tells us in this passage of Scripture, that he has bowed his heart before the Lord and he has 
pled for the mercy of God and for the deliverance of God. And God has spoken to the nation of Israel through the prophet. And here is the conclusion of this battle as recorded in Second Chronicles. It says, For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. Not one person within the nation of Israel ever raised a sword in this battle. God simply turned the enemies of Israel against one another, and they destroyed themselves, signifying the truth that the battle was not theirs, It was, in fact, the Lord's. Now, in Martin Luther's day, when he reflected on this psalm, he was not facing a military battle. Martin Luther was one of the original group of reformers who was undergoing a tremendous spiritual battle, who was undergoing tremendous persecution because of his stance upon the authority of God's word, because of his disenfranchisement with the established church, the Catholic church. He wanted to throw off the shackles of of inaccurate biblical interpretation. He wanted for the people of his day to know that they could stand before the Lord by grace alone, by faith alone, and the word of God alone. And so he found great solace in this psalm as he dealt with a spiritual battle, as he dealt with persecution over his stand for the accuracy of the Bible and for the true church. And so in our lives today, the continuous struggle that we share in is finding a source of security in this life that we live. We want to know that everything is going to be okay, and it's much like a little child who hears the thunderous growl of a thunderstorm, and he's scared beyond his imagination, and all he wants to do is crawl up in the arms of mom or dad, and he wants reassurance that everything is going to be okay. We are always looking for security in this life that we live. Now, some will find security in having a nice, big, fat bank account. But when the economy changes on its heels and we face a great recession or a great depression or a massive sell-off, security is gone. Some find security in the specialized skills that make them marketable or make them acceptable in the world. But when all of this changes in an instant, they're found without any source of security in their lives. For some, security is found in the families that they have, in the friends that they have, in the network of business associates who are there to provide support for them and help to them. Some find security in education or in government or in some other entity. And it is in these artificial sources that our souls seek to find something that will give us the reassurance that everything is going to be okay. Well, the reality is very simply this. There is no man-made source of security. There is no earthly creation that will ever provide the security that the depth of our souls need so desperately. The only source of true security that we're going to find in our lives is the security that comes in knowing that God is. 
The truth of this psalm is applicable to us today, whether we find ourselves in battle against a human foe, against a circumstantial challenge, or against a spiritual battle that is just seeking, is just sucking all of the energy, all of the joy out of our lives, and we wonder, how am I ever going to face tomorrow when the sun comes up again? Well, the reality is God is, and God is there, and we're going to learn what that means for us in this psalm. Read with me verses 1 through 11, the entirety of Psalm 46. The psalmist writes, God's word says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now let me pause right there. Everything else in this psalm flows out of this singular statement that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, the psalm is divided into three sections, one through three, four to seven, and eight through eleven. You'll see the word at this division, the word Selah. It's a Hebrew word. Nobody really knows for sure what that means. Most assume that it is some kind of a musical note, meaning pause or a crescendo or something along those lines. But each of these sections begins with some form of a statement which is then followed by a resulting truthful reality based upon that statement. So number one in our outline, God is our peace. Reading verse one again, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This statement is so significant. It is so important that it is a simple verse that we ought to memorize and repeat to ourselves all throughout the course of our lives, very simply because it means that God is there. This psalm begins by presenting God on a very personal level, not as a distant entity, not as a relationless deity or just some divine source, The Hebrew text actually reads, He is for us. He is for us our refuge. He is for us our strength. He is for us our very present help in times of trouble. This verse describes two realities. First of all, God is our refuge. He is our place 
of protection. God is the one who protects us from danger. Thinking about being in a storm and needing to get out of that storm, we seek a physical place that provides for us shelter. Our world is filled with millions and millions of refugees who are seeking a safe place of refuge where they can find security and they can find peace. Folks, our world is longing for a true place of refuge. For you and I, when we are in a battle, whether it be physical or circumstantial or spiritual, God is our place of protection. He is what shelters us. He is what provides the comfort and the security for us. It isn't in our church. It isn't in our denomination. It is in God Himself. And it is in our relationship with Him. It is where the character of God assures us that He is good. It is where the attributes of God remind us that He is control. He is in control of all that we face in our lives. And because that is true, God is our protection. It is in this place of refuge that we find the peace that God provides. It's where we find the assurance that everything is going to be okay because I am. This place of refuge, this place of security, this place that provides for us shelter is the place where God becomes most personal to us. When you want to know God on a personal level, you will get to know Him when He is your shelter, when He is your refuge. When life is difficult, what is our anchor? What is the true place of security that we find? What is it that really shelters us from the storms of life? The answer isn't in a what. The answer is in a home. God is our refuge. There is no other refuge except for God. If you find your refuge in a bank account, one day when that bank account is gone, your refuge is gone. When your refuge is your family, when your family is gone, your security is gone. When your refuge, when your shelter, when your security is found in something that man has created, it can be gone in an instant and you will be left in want. God is our refuge. Not only is God our refuge, but God is our strength. And I believe that means that God is our source of endurance. Now, we, we think about a place of refuge or a place of shelter where we are protected from. And I believe that that is true. You know, God protects us every day from things that you and I are totally unaware of. Have you ever heard of the providence of God? Have you ever heard of those, those coincidences where something has happened and we haven't been able to do what we wanted to do? We haven't been able to leave when we wanted to leave. We haven't been able to get there when we wanted to get there. Many, many, many times it is the providence of God that is protecting us from something that we are never, 
ever aware of. You exercise this in the life as a parent. You tell your kids, no, you can't do that. No, you can't go there because I want to protect you. And they believe you. And you have protected them from something that they've never even been made aware of that they have actually found protection from. But sometimes God allows us to experience the brunt of the battle. It is in these times that God strengthens us and he gives to us in our relationship with him the ability to endure. Now think about this. Israel was not always spared from its enemies. Isn't that right? Sometimes Israel was captured by its enemies. Sometimes Israel was exiled by its enemies. It was God's plan for them to be disciplined. It was God's plan for them to suffer. But it is in these times that God becomes our strength and gives to us the ability to endure. Now, in our times of battle, when God is allowing us to feel the brunt of the battle, He is our strength. I said this to you several weeks ago in talking about difficult circumstances. He has plans. We have Him, right? Because He is our refuge. He is our strength. God may be disciplining us in the brunt of the battle. There may be some unknown sin that God wants to make us aware of, and so He disciplines us to capture our attention. Sometimes there is the presence of unrepented sin, and God says enough is enough. I want to discipline you from that, and you are going to endure the brunt of this battle. It may be that there isn't unconfessed sin in your life. It may be that you aren't entangled by sin in your life. It may simply be that God desires that your life bear more fruit from Him for Him. And so He decides to prune you. And when God prunes, you know what it is when you go out to prune a plant, what do you do? You cut away, right? You snip, you cut. And what happens, that plant seeps something out. It might be milky, it might be sappy, it might be something that the plant emits when it's, when it's cut. And that's the reality, is that God will prune us so that we can bear more fruit from Him. for Him. These times are difficult, these times can be painful, and they are most certainly unwanted. And sometimes we feel like we can't make it another day. And when we say that, when we cannot... He can. Why? Because He is our strength. God is our refuge, literally and spiritually. God is our strength, able to do in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Paul spoke of this reality in the book of Philippians when he said, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What? I can do all things through through Him who strengthens me. Now, some would mistakenly teach that Paul enjoyed this prosperous life 
But Paul lived a life of great hardship. Paul lived a life of great suffering. And all throughout Paul's life, he would say this very thing, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And what Paul is saying here is that I can't do this without his strength. And that's the lesson that you and I need to learn. The secret to contentment or security is not found in material or in earthly things. It is found in our relationship with God. It is found in God alone. Paul knew exactly what the psalmist was writing about. Both are writing about the permanent Presence of the Lord. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is with us, whatever we face in this life. Here's what we often fail to remind ourselves of this very thing. We are people in great need. What do you mean by that? My pantry's full. My bills are paid. My health is generally good. What do you mean when you say that we are a people in great need? Well, we are wretched sinners saved by grace through the mercy of God. Period. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we joy is a part of God's goodness expressed towards us. But doesn't that happen to a vast majority of mankind? Well, it might. But are they praising God for that? Are they giving thanks to God for that? Are they aware of their desperate need for God in spite of that? You see, the more I believe, I believe the more we are aware of the completeness of our need for God, the greater of a God He becomes to us. Because after all, if God is just something I got back here in my pocket when there's a big problem, you got a little God who's there as an emergency. But when our lives are lived under the reality that I serve a great God who is able to do the impossible for me, we understand the depth of our need for Him. He is the one who helps us. Sometimes He is the only one who can help us. We will eventually learn that in our lives, and we'll learn that either through the illumination of His Word or through the discipline and the pruning that comes when God desires to get more out of us and we're willing to give to Him. Well, when I say that we are people in great need and that God helps us, He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This starts with our salvation. It continues with the ongoing sanctification in our lives. It continues with the future glorification that we so longingly await. All of that is what God does for us. None of that is what we can do for ourselves. Now, while God does have the ability to change our circumstances to rid us of this unwanted problem in our life, More often than not, God is simply going to be the place of refuge, the place of strength, because we're going to come to the end of ourselves and we are going to seek to know Him and to know Him more fully. He helps us by strengthening us, giving us the endurance to face the challenges in our life and enabling us to do what we cannot do 
without Him. So God is our peace. This is the beginning of the entire psalm. Now, don't fret, it gets much shorter from here. But this is the basis of the entire psalm. Verse 2a, and continuing in our, in our outline, Therefore, we will not fear. Because God is our refuge, because God is our strength, because God is our very present help in our time of trouble, we will not fear. Do you get that? Do you get the idea here? We're not to be dominated by fear during our battles, during great difficulty, over periods with tremendous uncertainty. Why? Because God is with us. God is with us. Through it all, in it all, in spite of it all, God is with us. Verses 2b and 3 describe what appears to be catastrophic natural disasters. And to be in this environment, you and I would be overwhelmed to such a degree that we wouldn't know what to do or where to go or what to do next. Here's what it says. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, we will not fear. You know, there's a segment within our world that is trying to convince us that there is such a change going on in our environment that you are about to die. Death is imminent. You know, I go to the Weather Channel every day just to kind of see what's going on in the weather, see what I can expect, at least reasonably, within the forecast of the day. And every headline is some environmental catastrophe. Destruction is imminent. It's right around the corner. And so we, we see this description of this catastrophic natural disaster. It sounds like it's a massive mudslide or it's an earthquake. The mountains are falling into the sea, creating this tremendous tsunami or it's a hurricane or it's some other catastrophic natural disaster. And when you're in the midst of that, you recognize your limitations. You can't do anything to stop it. You are, in fact, just hanging on for the ride. And the psalmist says, when that is your world, don't fear. God is your refuge. God is your strength. God is your ever-present help in your time of need. We can't do anything to change the vast majority of what is happening around us. We are, for the most part, absolutely powerless. And in the midst of this devastating reality... The psalmist very simply says, do not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in our time of trouble. But I believe that more than describing what would be considered a natural, catastrophic disaster, these verses are describing the feelings that people have when we're living in the worst reality that life has to offer. This is the depth of despair. 
Elizabeth Elliot has written several books in her life. She was most notably the wife of Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. There was a lot of mystery about this tribe of Indians, and Jim Elliot was burdened by the Lord to go and share the gospel with these depraved beings in Ecuador. And so during his ministry, his attempt to share the gospel with these Aka Indians, they killed him. They took his life from him. And as difficult as that was for Elizabeth Elliot to get over, she later remarried an individual by the, night, by the name of Addison Litch. And years later, he was consumed with cancer and died a very slow and agonizing death. And here are the words that she wrote in response to these overwhelming feelings that she had as she turned to Psalm 46. Everything that has seemed most dependable has given away. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. I don't know if you've ever lived through an experience where you felt like the mountains were receding into the oceans. And you were in the worst natural disaster you could even begin to imagine and you're just helplessly hanging on for the ride. If you've not been there, you might be there someday. And although some of us will experience much greater difficulty and hardship in our lives than others, we all need to know that it's not a matter of if we find great difficulty in our life. It's a matter of when. And when we do, we need to know that God is our peace. Secondly, in the next division of the psalm, Roman numeral 2, God is our joy. This is a bit of a complicated section in the psalm, remembering that all of this is flowing out of the reality that God is our refuge, God is our strength, God is our ever-present help in our time of need. God is our joy because of the safety and the security that he provides. Joy is found in his provision and in his protection. Now, this section describes the literal city of God, which is the city of Jerusalem. But it is also a foreshadowing of the spiritual city of the new Jerusalem that will be established in some unknown future period of time. So against the backdrop of a world that is aflame and in total conflict, we read verse 4, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. So the city of God is central in this section. The psalmist is speaking of literal Jerusalem. And in the, in the city of Jerusalem, there is the river Siloam, which is the only freshwater source that flows into the city. And the dwelling place of the Most High is the Temple Mount, the place where God dwells within the city of Jerusalem. But we also know that the city of God is understood to be a central theme to all of Scripture as it is a synonymous reference to 
the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not limited to the physical city of Jerusalem, but it, it describes all the people of God throughout all of human history, and that includes the people of the psalmist day. It includes you and I today, and it includes all of the people of God in the future. The kingdom of God is what the psalmist is referring to, referring to here. God is our joy because we belong to Him. The culmination of this kingdom looks forward to the new Jerusalem that will be established, which is a symbol for heaven where God's people will literally dwell within His house and live directly under His rule. Now, you and I comprise a portion of the kingdom of God. We are His people. And as His people, we live under His rule. That it is a, that is a rule that is spiritual in nature that we don't physically experience in our lives, but one day we will experience that in a physical and in a literal sense. But here... The psalmist is referring to it in a metaphorical sense about that which will come in the future. The river then, in this metaphorical sense, refers to the restoration and the blessing that comes from God. The dwelling place of the Most High is a metaphor to the throne of God, which is firmly established in heaven. You know, some years later, after the sons of Korah wrote this psalm, the nation of Israel was taken into captivity. The, the nation, excuse me, the northern kingdom fell, and then the kingdom of Judah fell, and the nation of Israel was exiled into enemy lands. And so, in a literal sense, this kingdom no longer existed. But oh, in the physical, in the literal sense, in a spiritual sense, that kingdom never ever went away because God dwells forever on His throne in the spiritual places, and one day we will experience that physically and literally. This kingdom that belongs to God and His people is described in this way, He is with us. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that God is with us? Well, you know, a lot of people look around and say, where is God? I don't see God. I see pain. I see suffering. I see crime. I see trauma. I see hardship. I don't see God anywhere. Well, we're looking in the wrong place. All of these realities that we see that seem to indicate the absence of God are very simply man's rejection of the reality of who God is and man's prideful determination to live life on his own. And what do you get when you remove God completely from your consciousness? What do you get? You get anarchy. You get rebellion. You get unspeakable sin. And with each decade that passes, it seems like man just continually creates some form of evil that sinks us deeper into the mire. And we think, how can man who is created in the image of God do such things? Well, because we've rejected God. But the reality is very simply this. God is with us. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her, of this city. She will not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns. So for the psalmist, thinking about the literal battle that is on the encampment outside of the walls 
of Jerusalem. He was not worried at all because he knew that God was going to fight for Israel and God would be Jerusalem's help in the morning. And if this account in Second Chronicles is accurate, when the morning came and Judah went out to look, all they saw was dead bodies. The Lord had won the battle on their behalf. So as we apply this truth to the spiritual kingdom of God, you and I can find great joy in knowing that we belong to His kingdom. He is in our midst and will be our help at the dawning of each and every day. Our joy can be found in the certainty of the victory that belongs to Him, that belongs to us because of Him, because He is powerful. God is powerful. His kingdom is secure. His throne is established. And there is not anything that can change that. Verse 6. The nations made an uproar. The encampment around them. All of these all of these different countries that are mentioned in Second Chronicles or in other parts of the Bible, when they were coming against the nation of Israel, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, it seemed like chaos was about to ensue for the nation of Israel. Here's what it says, he raised his voice and the earth melted. Think about that. Think about being on the brink of a world war, and God simply speaks, and the earth melts. Well, you know, it's really not a big thing for God, because God spoke everything into existence. And so God raises His voice, and the earth melts before Him. It speaks not only of the power of God over His created world, but also of the sovereignty of God over His kingdom, over His people, over His plans and His purposes. In a world that is aflame, we are safe and secure in His presence because He is our refuge and He is our strength. We can find great joy in that, can't we? In a spiritual world that is destined for an eternity in hell, we are safe and secure in His kingdom because we are His people through our faith and the work of Christ on the cross. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You and I have nothing to fear in this world because we belong to him. And since we belong to him, we can, ha we can have great joy because he is ours and we are his and there is nothing that can change that. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And so the Lord of hosts, or the Lord Most High, or the Lord God Almighty is with us. His presence is certain as our stronghold. His protection is certain. And because that is true, God is our hope. This final section is to look forward to what God will do in the future as He is the refuge and strength for the kingdom of God or the city of God. There is this invitation to see what God has done. Verse 8a, Come, behold the works of the Lord. This is a call to evaluate all that God has done in His redemptive work 
for the nation of Israel. And if you didn't pick this up within your reading of the Old Testament, the redemptive redemptive work of Israel has always resulted in the destruction of God's enemies. Always. God was redeemed from the Egyptian army through the destruction of of the Egyptian army. When the nation of Israel moved into the promised land, the redemption of God was seen in the destruction of the walls of Jericho. This continues on and on and on. Redemptive work has always resulted in the destruction of God's enemies. Here's what we need to underscore. He is always victorious. God is infinite and zero. God's record is perfect. We look at a football team or a basketball team or some other sports team that has a perfect record, but eventually they lose a game. You know what? God has never lost a battle. Never, not ever, not won. God's record is perfect. Look what it says here in the second part of verse 8 and 9. Who has wrought desolations in the earth? He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. There is no enemy that can stand against God's judgment or against God's plans or against God's purposes or against God's people because he is always victorious. He has destroyed the mightiest of armies in defense of and for the benefit of his people. This redemptive work also speaks of God's spiritual work of redemption against every spiritual enemy that stands against the purposes of God. This leads us to one of the great admonitions in all of the Bible. Because this is true, because He is powerful, because He is always victorious, because no enemy can stand against Him, be still and trust. Do not fear. Verse 10a, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. This is a word of great reassurance to God's people that we are to rest in the knowledge that God is, that he is our peace, that he is our joy, that he is our hope. But this is also a warning to those who oppose God, who are literal or who are spiritual enemies of God, verse 10b, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There is no one and no thing that can stand against God. Stop striving against me. You cannot win. You will not win. I will have my way. As a final reassurance to the people of God, we read in verse 11, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. You know, we need to learn what it means to be still and know that He is God. It is in our lack of resistance, physically, humanly speaking, against those obstacles, those circumstances, those difficulties, those hardships in our life, that we can rest in the security that is ours because we belong to Him. You know, when we face hardship and difficulty in our life, our first response is to fight against it. Isn't it? Someone done me wrong, I'm going to get them back. 
someone's doing something that I don't like, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change that. Sometimes you're totally along for the ride. I have no control over this, but I'm going to do everything I can to fight against the thing. We just need to learn to stop and rest in knowing that God is. He's in control. He has plans. He has purposes. And we have him. I believe that most often we don't find God to be our source of joy, our source of peace, and our source of hope because we take it all into our hands and believe it depends upon us. And we try to fit God into a box. And we don't let God do what it is He wants to do. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts... The stronghold of Jacob is with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that we are a people in great need. If we don't realize that, Father, I pray that you would reveal that to us. I pray that you would show us how self-reliant, how self-dependent we are. I pray, Father, that in the depth of the worst that life has to offer, that we would find the peace and the joy and the hope that you provide as our refuge and as our strength. God, I pray that in the days of plenty, in the days where we don't experience the hardship and the difficulty, we would be faithful to still find you as our source of peace and joy and hope. God, we thank you that you can and you will do for us what we can't do for ourselves I pray that we would learn to rest in that reality and allow you to be the sovereign God that you are, to have your way in our lives so that we would experience to a greater degree all that you provide in our relationship with you. Father, we thank you that we belong to you and that you sovereignly rule not only over our lives, but over all the universe that you've created. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.